I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, uh, one of the things that I am very conscious of, and I listen to my sermons every week, and and one of the things I try to do is, uh, oh, don't do that. No. Uh, I try to make sure that I make statements that I believe are honorable and consistent with the word and are not as confusing. And I know I can muddy the water for people at times, but I made a statement a couple of weeks ago that I want to try to clarify today if I can. And I was talking about the five C's, and you can throw that slide up there. Many of you know we've talked about this over and over here, and something I believe God's developing here as far as our discipleship and a lot of the things that go with it. But we're talking about capped. And I mentioned in there the cap, of the, the, the cap that people get to, and I mentioned multiple ones, and there are way more. We could do a whole series on being capped. But one of them is generosity or the lack of generosity. And I made a statement that just bothered me, and I think may have went by you and you never thought about it, but I want to make sure that it's not confusing for you. And I knew what I meant at the time, but I also knew that I misstated. And I made a statement called, that tithing is the getting in point. And I realized after I said it and after I listened to it and I asked a couple other people and staff members specifically, and they say, yeah, as soon as you said it, I, it, I kind of caught myself. They caught themselves going, ooh. And what I was trying to say was, is that tithing, I believe, is the ground floor. When you begin to live into the obedience of God at its fullest extent of generosity, tithing is the ground floor, it's not the ceiling. But what I said was, it's the getting in point, as if that is the thing that gets you to be a Christian as much as it gets you to be a part of renovation or gets you to be a part of whatever. And I want to make sure you understand that that is not the way I think about that. You can attend here, matter of fact, I'm sure many of you do, that you don't give it all here. And we still love you. And we'll love you from now on. And I'll be your pastor from now on. And for some of you, 10% and giving of everything is a way you work up to it. I get that too. Uh, many people do it that way. Sometimes I think, though, it's, it's, it's wise to go all in. And for some of you, you may come today and say, well, I, don't, I believe tithing is an old, it's the Old Testament, it's the law. But my response to that is, maybe so. But one of the, when I read in Scripture, grace, and, and, and we're now in grace, many would say we're now in grace. And I say, well, grace always goes above the law. The law would say, don't commit murder. Grace says, don't have, have, don't have hate in your heart for your brother. Law says, do not commit adultery. Grace says, do not have lust in your heart. Grace always goes above the law. So if you want to go that route, then... Tithing is just the ground floor. There is no limitation on what you should give. There's no ceiling on it. I love what Martin Luther said. There are three conversions necessary. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse. Because we believe that the use of money is a deeply spiritual thing. And it is an honest reflection of your heart towards God. Because if people are selfish with their money, you will never get their real contributions to the kingdom. I'm going to say that again. I believe if people are selfish with money, 
you'll never ever get their real contributions to the kingdom. Jesus talked about more than more about money than he did heaven and hell combined. Almost half the parables are about money and possessions. In scripture, there are 500 verses about prayer, 500 verses about faith, and more than 2,000 about money and possessions. But I love, and this is what I want you to hear from the heart of your pastor, Mark chapter 10. I'm doing a dangerous thing today. I'm preaching two sermons at once. He said, man, alive, don't do that. You took 55 minutes last time you did that. I don't know if you realize we put a clock, you know, we put the alley clock back there, you know, two weeks ago. We've preached the two longest sermons we've ever preached with that clock back there, so that... That's a concerning thing. But Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 27. Jesus started out on his way to Jerusalem. A man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man. This is the part I want you to hear. I hope I reflect Jesus in that way. Jesus felt genuine love for him. There's still one thing you haven't done. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and all you have treasure to the heaven, to, and all you, ha, all you, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And this man's face fell, and he went away and sad, for he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, "How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven?" This amazed them. But Jesus says again, "Dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it seems." Easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved? He then asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. But Jesus loved him deeply. We are calling committed followers of Jesus Christ to a minimum standard of tithing and exploring the joy of generosity. And it is not called legalism, you can call it that, but an invitation to freedom. But let me say this, and this is what I want you to hear as I wrap this part of it up. If you don't believe in Renovation Church, in its leadership and its vision, that's okay. I'm going to love you anyway. But what I would say to you is go find a church where you can. You don't have to be here. Just go find a church where you can believe in its leadership. You can believe in its vision and start giving with a generous heart. I want that for you, even if it's not here. I want it for you because I believe it's an invitation to freedom. I want that for you because I believe it expands the kingdom when you do that. It doesn't have to be here, but go find it. But go find it. The end. Okay. <laughs> We're starting a series today. And it's the book of Acts. You can go back there, this. I love the book of Acts. Many of you, 
I've talked to about it. It's just, it's, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. But this, over this next three months, we're going to be deep, digging deeply into the book of Acts. There's 28 chapters. I'll talk about that in just a second. But we're not going to do all 28 because we won't be going through the series that long. So be praying for us as we try to listen to the Spirit as he leads us what to preach on. Because we know there's so many rich things to be talking about through this series uh, that we could talk about that we're going to have to leave out. So if you would be put myself and our whole staff, those of our teaching team, and everybody will probably be involved in it. Please be praying for us as we ask the Spirit to lead us into what would be appropriate at this time in this stage of Renovation Church that we would need to hear from the Word. So please be praying for us on that. But the book of, the book of Acts is called, in many ways, called the Acts of the Apostles. However, though, the apostles, the original 12 disciples are not mentioned uh, as much here. I mean, Peter and John are and Philip. But it's so much about the Apostle Paul and his conversion and, and the ministry and the movements of him and, and really the, the raising up from the church and from the ideal that it is the, the church is and Jesus coming as, for, as the Messiah of the Jews to by the end of Acts, it's a, it's a worldwide movement that's beginning to change the course of history that is mostly non-Jews. And it leads from the ascension of Jesus, where we'll start today, to the trial of Paul and imminent death, if you would, of Paul. And so as we begin in the book of Acts today, just to kind of set it up, Jesus is, is winding down his mission, obviously, and it's kind of a continuation of the book of Luke, or it is in many ways. And, and the disciples are beginning to understand that he really is leaving. And Jesus is showing up to them in these post-resurrection ways, and, and, and they couldn't doubt it was him. I mean, you know, when he begins to walk through locked doors and <laughs> begins to show the, the crucifixion wounds and begins to do those kind of things, but he, can, but he continues to also sit down with them. He walks on the road to Emmaus, and they begin to see him as who he was before, but he's different. So that's where we're going to launch into today in Acts chapter 1. And just be praying for my voice as we try to try to finish this out today. In my former book, Theopolis, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the disciples he had chosen. After his suffering, suffering he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who, had been taken, who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way. You have seen him go into heaven. No doubt, 
They watched in amazement. No doubt they had seen him die on the, on the, on the cross, or maybe many of them didn't see him. We don't know that for sure, but some of them did. They know he had died. They saw the empty tomb. Amazement. Now they're seeing him just kind of take off. So there had to be a lot of amazement around this whole event. But I'm guessing they probably were also thinking, now that Jesus is alive, we're going to get back to what we were doing before. We're going to get back to be making, making a difference. We're going to, now our movement, now, now that Jesus can add the resurrection to his resume, okay, that kind of makes it a bigger deal, right? They had contemplated, and no doubt when they were alone after, maybe together, they were gathered together after the, the, the crucifixion. They thought this investment they had made three, three and a half years earlier was kind of a waste, but now all of a sudden they're realizing not only was this investment great, it was greater than they thought. Now Jesus and his entourage are going to make this huge impact on culture. Matter of fact, the Roman Empire is going to be flipped upside down because of what's about to happen. But it's as if the disciples were not listening. Because they asked the question, Lord, is this the time when you were restored the kingdom to Israel? Because that was their dream. That was their hope. That was what they had been thinking all along when they traveled with him for three years. That someday, somewhere, he's going to bring that back into existence. But Jesus tells them that's a moot point. You don't need to worry about that. Let me tell you what you do need to worry about is you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What Jesus is stating to them at this point is a new purpose. You will be a witness. You're not going to be a conqueror and just restore Israel back. You're going to become this witness this testimony of me. And you've got a new destination. It's not just here in Israel, not just here in Jerusalem. And see, it's so significant for these disciples and so significant for any Jew in the first century to hear what Jesus is saying because up to that point, they'd been bringing all the sacrifices and all their gifts to Jerusalem. And now Jesus is going, no, you're about to go. You're going to go away from here. And the term witness there is not as simple as it sounds. Literally, you shall be a martyr. You shall be willing to give your life for me. So as they're hearing this, it's not just this simple idea, well, when, you, when the conversation comes up somewhere along the way, tell people about me. is that you got to be all in because your life is on the line. But here's the deal. I'm going to give you power to do this. It's interesting to me as I read this, as I've thought about it over the last few weeks as we've been going and kind of trying to work on it as, a, as the weeks have been, on, been, been going on. I love the thought and in Friendly Chapel, and I'll get to that a little bit, all about Friendly Chapel in North Little Rock. It's interesting that when Jesus' dreams for us are always greater than our dreams for ourselves. 
Whatever your dream is right now that you think you want to do for Jesus, his dream is greater than what your dream is. Disciples are basically dreaming to overthrow the Roman government, to restore their people to their prominence, their deserved prominence. They are the chosen people. That was their dream. And I'm not saying there was anything wrong with that particular dream. It's just too small. No, you're going to the ends of the earth. You're not just restoring your land that you have. You're going to the ends of the earth. You're going to subdue the earth. What if this morning you've come? You've got a dream for your life, no doubt. But when Jesus gets a hold of your dream, he's going to take you to places you never imagined. But like I said a few weeks ago about T.D. Jakes, T.D. Jakes says every one of us, almost every person has a dream or a thought about their preferred future. All of us have that. He said the problem is not that we have a dream for a preferred future. The problem is, is what we're not willing to let go of to get there. Do you know that when God begins to change and God begins to, begins to transform and call you, there's fallout. And he begins to draw you away and call you to do something unusual, a dream bigger than what you had for yourself, there's fallout. Even your preconceived ideals have to fall away. What you always thought it was supposed to be has to fall away, maybe. For some of you, you may have come in here today with this thought about the whole Christian thing. Is that Jesus is here for your comfort. Jesus is here for your safety. That's your dream about Christianity. You just want Jesus to keep everything all right in your life. To keep you from any harm. You think Jesus is about our protection, our success, our future. Our view of Jesus is all about us. Him making sure that everything is okay in my life. Because God would never let that, whatever that is, happen to me. I think it's Irvin said, McManus says, where do we ever get this idea? That the safest place, he goes on to say, the safest place is to be in the center of God's will. Did you know that the most dangerous place may be in the center of God's will? You ever thought about that? Do you realize that the most dangerous place physically you can be may be slap dab in the center of God's will? But let me tell you this. Being in, in the center of God's will may be dangerous. But being outside of God's will is a dangerous place too. But here's what I think is awesome. When you're in the center of God's will, he makes you dangerous. What I love about it is when Peter and John or Paul showed up places and there was all these riots, I don't think there were going to be riots before. It's because they showed up, they had riots. Because they were dangerous. They carried a message 
with power. And it disturbed those whom they came in contact with. Some of you just want to get the right information about Jesus. You think that's what Jesus is talking about? You shall be endued with power? Because you get the right information? We witnessed the church this week at Friendly Chapel. Brother Paul Holdfield Sr. could barely read. But the power of God was in his life. When I attended his funeral January of 1998, I remember this pastor saying, many pastors have the theology of Christ, but Brother Paul had the reality of Christ. Changed the community. And still changing lives today. And he's been gone 20 years. I know it's not the best thing to tell parents. Raise up your kids to go to the dangerous places. We send them off to college. We do things for them just so they won't go to those places. We want them to have a good life. We want them to have a great income. We want them to have, but where are we going to raise up the people going to the dangerous places? The church should be the place. But what we've got to do is raise up people who are dangerous when they show up there. That are endued with power. Should have been a hint to us. When we look in scripture. And see the reality of the biblical experience from Abraham all the way to Paul. They're subjected to trials, persecution, and death. A hint should be to us that the central metaphor for our belief is an instrument of death. It should be a hint. You shall receive. If we're not careful, many of us will think that passage, those words right there are really more like, it's a passive thing. In other words, I was kind of like sitting at home waiting for something to come in the mail. You're not sure when it's coming, but you'll get it when God decides you'll get it. You just wait around for it. But that passage of scripture, what that means right there is, is to be active, accept with initiative and assertiveness to lay hold of it. You shall receive it when you hunger for it. You shall receive it when you're thirsty for it. You shall receive it when you assert yourself for it. It's not sitting around just hoping and no. You shall receive power, dunamis, dynamite power. It makes me think of Luke 16, 16, and there's another passage, and I've just lit my mind here, where the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing and forceful men take hold of it. The complementary scripture to that is Luke 16, 16. Jesus speaking says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. It literally means only two times in scripture it's used like this. But it's to forcibly seize, laying hold of something. It's a positive aggressiveness. Does that make sense? It's not just being aggressive. It's a positive aggressiveness. 
Jesus says in order to operate in the kingdom of God, it has got to be deliberate, it's got to be purposeful, it's got to be determined, it's got to be vigorous, and it's got to be forceful. And the word power there simply means the Lord's inherent ability to do it. He is not calling you to something that he is not equipping you to do. He is equipping you with power. When we read these words, and it comes off the page to us, is this living and active like a double-edged sword. The gospel comes with inherent power. There's power in these words. But it always depends on the hearer of these words. To some of you in this room today, I realize anything we're reading here is simply words to you. That's all they are. Some of you in here today, they're disturbing words to you. They're bothering you. But when you step towards it and say, God, I am all in on this thing. I hunger and thirst for this. The gospel explodes in our lives. When you allow what the word says to penetrate your heart. This week, I've been going to Friendly Chapel for 20, known Friendly Chapel for 20, 27 years, 26 years. Been taking groups there since 2001. And for some reason, this time around, there was a little lady named Minnie Holderfield that is just stuck in my conscience, stuck in my, my heart. And Minnie Holderfield, many of you may know the story, but I'm going to share it with you briefly. Minnie Holderfield is the mother of Paul Holderfield Sr. Many of you know that Paul Holderfield Sr. was a racist, drunkard, fireman for the North Little Rock Fire Department, but gave his life to the Lord in 1969 or 1972. They started a church in one of the worst parts of, of, of North Little Rock and worst part of that central Arkansas because God told him to start a church there with a few little black kids. And they started a church in this church now of almost 700. And God's done a miracle there in their community and transformed their community through them. But if you back up a little bit, when Brother Paul gave his life to the Lord, his mom, Minnie Holderfield, lay in a hospital bed and they kept telling the family that she won't make it through the night and she lasted three months. And they kept telling her, and she was conscious enough, they kept telling her, Mom, just go on to heaven, just let go. And she says, I can't. Because who's going to pray for the kids until I know someone, one of you guys is a believer, I can't let go. So she kept hanging on, kept hanging on, kept hanging on. She had a husband who was a drunkard and a physical abuser. She had lived with him all those years. And many times, as Paul says, she would be beaten and gun held to her head and threatened to kill her. And all the children would say, Mom, you've got to leave him. And she'd say, I can't leave him. Who would pray for him if I leave him? Now, I'm not recommending that to everybody. All I'm saying is that's what she did. 
But she, was in the, she believed she was in the center of God's will. And I'm going to tell you right now, it doesn't sound like the safest place to me. Here she was in that hospital in Little Rock. And her children telling you, telling her, let go. She says, I can't. And this week, I, we went to Pettyjean Mountain. Many of you may, some of you may know where it is. Now there's many of you here know where it is because you went with us. But I was told as I was going up there, and I'd never, we'd never done this on the Arkansas trip, and Brother Paul told me, he said, you know, many, my grandmother's buried up there. My grandfather and grandmother are buried up there in a little cemetery behind a little old church. And I tried to find it. couldn't find it. I drove around for about an hour trying to find it. And I talked to one of the guys there at Friendly Chapel, and he said, yeah. He said, I found it one time. He said, I found the church, found the little cemetery. He said, but really the only marking there is for the dad, but the mom's hardly anything there to mark her grave. I thought, boy, that's interesting. Back to Brother Paul. He wasn't Brother Paul. He was just Paul, the child of many Holderfield at that time. And the Lord laid on his heart and he gave his life to the Lord in the bathroom of that hospital. And he went and told the Lord, he said, Lord, if you'll let my mom live to Sunday. And he believed you had to go down front at an altar to give your life to the Lord. He didn't know he gave his life to the Lord right there in that bathroom. So that next Sunday, he went down front of a little Nazarene church. And he went and told his mom that he had given his life to the Lord. There's somebody to pray and she died that afternoon. For it was all over with, Brother Paul led his three siblings to the Lord. All, all of them came to know Christ. But I want to give you a little backdrop. The first child Minnie Holderfield had, and, and Mr. Holderfield, I don't know his name, it slips in my mind. He was six years old, and at six years old, he was drinking whiskey and smoking cigars, and they thought it was hilarious. First child of theirs, I think his name's Orville. And they would get him drunk and let him run around and everybody would just sit around and laugh about him. They had him smoking those cigarettes with big old cigars. Well, he choked on something and choked to death. And he died at six years old. And Minnie Holderfield, the mom, after they buried him, went out in the field there next to their house and put her face before the Lord and began to cry. And she cried all night long and said, God, if you'll give me more children, I promise you, I promise you, I will raise them to honor you. He said people came from all around because there was a light shining on her. They couldn't figure it out. So that people would come up on their horses and buggies and they would look out there and there was this light shining in the field and there she was laying there crying out to God. They said there's different people who said it. Then as time went on, he gave her four children. People would ride for miles around just for many to pray for them. This is what I want to say to you in context of what we're talking about today. Many Holderfield's dream was, God saved my four children, but what she didn't know, she was transforming a community. What she didn't know was she was touching young people from Phoenix, Arizona. That's what she didn't know. Her dream was like this, but God had a greater dream because she put herself in the lane to be used of God and in the center of her will, in the center of his will, in the center of his presence more than anything. Where it's a dangerous place many times. And basically an unmarked grave with no celebration. She's changing a few generations. 
We talk about Brother Paul, and you can get his book. There's some books back there, and you can read the story a little more if you want to get it today. But I think something needs to be written about Minnie. Because <laughs> that's the grandmother who stayed in there. <laughs> that's the grandmother who was on her face. That's the grandmother who just that little bitty lady just had a little bitty dream, but Jesus took that little dream and he blew it up. What if there was a group of people? What if? Aggressively. Positive. I like this. Positive aggressiveness. I like that definition. (laughs) Positive aggressiveness. Chased after the heart of God. What if? And what I love about this passage of scripture is he's talking to the disciples. What they don't realize is Jesus has given them a mission. That they were headed somewhere. But they weren't hearing this as historians so they could write it down later. Later, They were hearing it as soldiers of the kingdom. Uh, at that point, they were not equipped to do what they were about to do. But guess what? Next week we'll talk about it. Next, They were about to be equipped, weren't they? Jesus was preparing them and inviting them to a transformation of monumental importance and proportion. I believe this. Jesus' vision of the church was never, ever to sit on the street corner and wait for people to show up. It's for us to be soft and light. We're already engaged and influential. Empowered. Dunamis power. To be his witnesses. And just say, God, I want to be in the center of your presence. I don't care if it's the safest place or not. Matter of fact, I think it probably is the safest place. (laughs) But Lord, I want you to make me dangerous for the kingdom. Really, guys, I think Jesus would say, your dream ain't big enough. Your dream. I've been in Arkansas all week, so ain't feels good. Your dream ain't big enough. When you put it in his hands, and it's empowered by the only, and we'll talk about it more next week, when it's empowered by the Holy Spirit, hang on. Just hang on. And you may not even know in your lifetime. All many wanted was one child to be saved so he, they could pray. She didn't know again that she was changing generations to come. You bow your head, if you would, today with me. I feel like this morning there may be a, some of you here this morning just been waiting for something to show up and if God wanted you to have it you'd already have it and when I read the word it says you got to take a step you got to move forward I'm just wondering this morning before we go to communion It may be just maybe 
you've realized whether you're on the trip this last week or maybe even this morning. But man, this Jesus that can take a dream that I have and make it more than I ever thought. I may, matter of fact, he may take my dream and throw it in the trash and give me a new vision. But I don't know this Jesus. I really don't know this Jesus. I see it in other people. I've come today just curious. But maybe today before we take communion, Just let us pray with you. The song we sang earlier, the chorus, I am lost, I am lost without you. Now I'm found singing your praise. I know what it's like to one day, December 13th, 1986, for most of that day to about six o'clock that evening, having no idea what it meant to sing the praises of God. And from that day forward, I haven't been able to stop. But you have to aggressively step forward and say, I want this. I desire this. Sure, grace is free. No question. (laughs) But it'll cost you everything after you accept him and he begins to shape your life. And I know it's concerning. I know it's scary. Because this may be the only person you've ever known. You don't know what God will do with you. But man, his dream's bigger than whatever dream you've had for yourself. I'm going to ask if you would right now. I'm going to pray a prayer before we go to communion. If you want to be a part of a prayer of accepting Christ as your Savior. I know this is going to feel a little awkward. I'm just going to ask you to stand. Everybody else have your head bowed. If you just stand across this room, say, I want that. I desire that. This morning's just been simply words, but somehow or another something stirred in me. just pray right now Lord as even you said to the rich young ruler you loved him you loved him so much but you still had to tell him the truth with the risk that he would walk away we don't know if later on if that rich young ruler came back from some other hearing of the gospel after your crucifixion and resurrection we don't know Lord but we know in that moment you still had to tell him the truth Lord as you told the disciples quit worrying about all that other stuff here's what I'm calling you to do but Lord you come today to invite each one of us to the greatest invitation we'll ever have is to be a child of God And inside of that, stepping forward, there's this beautiful story that may not ever be written unless we do that. Lord, we thank you for the one that stood today. Lord, that he would know you and confess with his mouth and believe in his heart that you are who you say you are. The word says we shall be saved. But Lord, I pray also pray a rock across this room for some 
who are feeling this stirring of a legacy like a mini Holderfield. That 50 years later, they'll still be talking about it. Even though our grave is not marked to any kind of significance. But man, she left her mark. Give us that kind of grit, Lord. Give us that kind of determination and positive aggressiveness to say, I'm not giving up. I'm not stopping. I'm not quitting praying. I can't die yet until I know. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the call. But you don't just call us. You empower us to do it. And we give you thanks today. We pray in your name, Jesus.